This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. I have the privilege tonight of introducing Pete. Uh, before I do and call him up to the podium, just a little bit about our format tonight. After I introduce uh, Peter, we will, um, he will come up and deliver about a 30-minute uh, address to us. And then afterwards, uh, I will facilitate a, a Q&A session. So uh, during Pete's address, if you um, are thinking about questions to ask, uh, you'll have the opportunity uh, during our open Q&A to ask those questions. Also, before I introduce Pete, I want to give a special thank you to Casey Andrews and uh, Whitworth Speakers and Artists Series, uh, who were instrumental in helping to bring Pete to uh, Whitworth. Uh, Pete arrived earlier today at about 12.30 from a cross-country trip from Washington, D.C., and if any of you have ever made that cross-country trip, you know that it's, uh, it's been a long day for Pete, so we're very grateful that uh, he's willing to speak to us tonight. Peter Weiner is a senior fellow at the Ethics and Policy Center, a conservative institute and think tank located in Washington, D.C., who has served uh, in the last three Republican administrations. In 2001, he was named Deputy Director of Speechwriting for President George W. Bush. He later served President Bush as Director of the Office of Strategic Initiatives, where he reached out to prominent thinkers and advised the White House on a range of domestic and international issues. He was a senior advisor to Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign, and he's been affiliated with several leading research institutions and organizations. Prior to joining the Bush administration, Pete was executive director for policy for Empower America, a conservative public policy organization. He's also served as special assistant to the director of the Office for National Drug Control Policy, and before that, as a speechwriter for then Secretary of Education, William Bennett. Pete is a frequent commentator on television and radio and has written widely on political, cultural, religious, and national security issues. A regular blogger for Commentary Magazine, he is the author of two books, the first with Arthur C. Brooks, titled Wealth and Justice, the Morality of Democratic Capitalism, and the second with Michael Gerson, the title City of Man, Religion and Politics in a New Era. Washington Monthly has called him one of the country's most influential reform-minded conservatives, and in Forbes magazine, the political consultant Mary Matlin featured him on a short list of conservatism's leading, and I'm quoting, educators and practitioners of first principles, end quote. Since leading the White House, leaving the White House in 2007, he has written for the New York Times, the Weekly Standard, National Review, the Washington Post, the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Christianity Today, just to mention a few. Pete has also appeared as a commentator on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, C-SPAN, and the BBC. Pete is a native of Washington State. He grew up and attended high school in Richland, Washington, and is a proud graduate of the University of Washington. And on a personal note, I met Pete last uh, year, actually in December of earlier this year, when uh, he was giving a lecture at National Presbyterian Church there in Washington, D.C., which I had the privilege of attending. And I was impressed by the ways that Pete integrated his Christian faith 
into his analysis of political and social issues. And irrespective of his political leanings, I thought he would be a great fit to come and speak at Whitworth, particularly during general election season, and particularly given Whitworth's emphasis on the integration of Christian faith and learning. So now, would you please join me in giving a warm Whitworth welcome to Peter Weiner. Pete. Thank you, uh, Beck, Mr. President. Nice to say that again. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to, uh, to be with uh, you. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you all for coming out on a, on a rainy Tuesday night. Uh, as, uh, as President Taylor said, it's a joy to return here uh, to Washington State. I did grow up uh, about two hours south of here in, uh, in Richland. Uh, so all my really formative years were spent in this state. Uh, graduated from Hanford High School, went to University of Washington. So it's a good year to be a Husky fan, football-wise and, uh, and otherwise. Um, so it's, it's really uh, nice to, uh, to come home. Uh, it was the um, 20th century English poet John Maysfield who said that there are few earthly places more beautiful than a university. Uh, it's a place where those who hate ignorance may strive to know, and those who perceive truth may strive uh, to make others see. And Whitworth University is an institution uh, that embodies that vision articulated by Maysfield. It's a place comprised of students uh, and faculty who hate ignorance, and who love truth, who strive to know, uh, and who strive to make others see. And the marvelous thing about Whitworth is that it is striving uh, for intellectual truth, but it's also found a place for Christian faith. Uh, so this is a university in which the two are twinned rather than at odds, and where intellectual inquiry is encouraged, and where honoring God and following Christ are celebrated. And those of you who are a part of the Whitworth community are a part of something uh, very special. Uh, I will uh, talk about uh, politics and religion, so, <laughs> so it's going to be controversial. Um, just, just warning you. But both of those things are, uh, are a part of, um, of my life, and I think they're both important. And so I'm going to uh, try and talk about them both distinctly, and, and I hope integrate them as well. And um, so I'm going to shift from the relative peace of the academy to the uh, roiling waters of politics and my assigned topic, which is reflections on the current election season. Oi, uh, I drew the short straw. Uh, let me begin by first giving you a, uh, a quick encapsulation on where I think things stand kind of empirically. And um, I'm happy to elaborate on this or anything else, of course, in my talk during during the Q&A, so feel free to, uh, to have at me when, um, when we're done. Uh, I hate to end the suspense, but Hillary Clinton uh, will be the next president of the United States. Uh, she is likely to win easily, and Democrats will make, I think, significant gains in the House uh, and the Senate. I was talking to somebody earlier, and actually at this point, uh, the Republicans um, have uh, maintained a pretty good position um, as it relates to the House and Senate right now, the, uh, the undertow from the Trump candidacy um, is not overwhelming uh, at this point. So I think if the election were held today, the uh, Republicans in the House would lose uh, probably about two-thirds uh, of their majority, but would still maintain a majority in the House. 
the Senate, it's very hard to tell. There's just a lot of, a lot of close races. I suspect the Democrats would, would win. Uh, we're three weeks out, uh, and so a lot can happen. Uh, well, a lot can happen in any election with three weeks to go. In this election, a whole lot can happen with three weeks to go. On the presidential level, uh, Hillary Clinton leads in nearly every battleground state. So Pennsylvania, Colorado, state I now live in, Virginia, uh, New Hampshire, North Carolina, Florida, Nevada, uh, Ohio is essentially tied, and Donald Trump leads um, only in Iowa. And the Clinton campaign is making uh, forays into traditionally Republican states now, like Arizona uh, and, and other ones. So the, the map is wide open. It's always been difficult for, for Trump, or really for any Republican at this point, uh, to, to win at the presidential level because of the nature of the electoral map and the demographics in the country. So any Republican has, would, would have a tough time, uh, but it's, it's triply difficult now, and no candidate has ever come back uh, from a situation as dire as the one that is facing Donald Trump right now. And uh, it seems to me he's doing everything possible to turn an election loss into a landslide defeat. Um, and uh, I think it's a tragedy for Republicans. Um, and for somebody like me, who's been a member of the Republican Party my entire life, worked in the last three Republican administrations. Um, it's a party I care about. I'm a conservative. It's a philosophy I care about. And um, this is an election that I think Republicans uh, should have won uh, and could have won if you, if you took, apart, took out the individuals that were involved and just said you now uh, would be essentially the third consecutive term of, of the Democratic Party. It's unusual for a party to win three presidential elections in a row. Uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, whatever talents one may think that she has, uh, she's not a very good candidate. Uh, she can't hold a, a candle to, for example, her, her husband, who was really one of the great natural talents ever, or, or Barack Obama. Um, but uh, Republicans decided to kick it away, uh, and that is what they're in the process of, of doing. Um, putting on my hat as a political analyst and looking just below the top line and the internal polling data, I'd say the single most important fact uh, in this election, <clears throat> empirically speaking, is this. Donald Trump uh, is at risk of becoming the first Republican ever to lose uh, most college-educated whites. He's not only on track for the worst performance uh, ever among college-educated white women, but he's also significantly underperforming among college-educated white uh, men. Consider this, the biggest Democratic advantage ever with college-educated white women uh, was plus eight, and that was in 2000 uh, with Al Gore against uh, my former uh, boss, George W. Bush. Polls now show uh, that Mrs. Clinton has an advantage of around 30 points. Among uh, the college-educated white men, usually Republicans win them uh, by around 20 points. Donald Trump runs from about even to plus seven to 10. So when you add the huge Democratic advantage among uh, minority voters, there just aren't enough non-college whites to make up that difference. The second uh, key demographic point, uh, in this election, we are going to see the widest gap ever between blue-collar uh, and white-collar whites. For example, uh, Trump is posting advantages of 30 to 40 points among non-college-educated white men. And among non-college educated white women, he's leading by between 12 and 15 points. Uh, 
So he's matching, or even to some extent exceeding the usual Republican advantage among non-college whites, but he's dramatically underperforming compared to literally every Republican nominee ever among college whites. And so this election seems guaranteed to produce the biggest gap ever between those two groups. Um, so there's a lot of talk about the polarization uh, that's going on in America today, which is true. It's a complicated phenomenon. We can go into some of the reasons for it if you want during Q&A. But this is yet one more uh, area where I think the polarization is going to, to grow. Uh, on the matter of uh, non-college white women, that's where this election could really uh, turn into a rout territory for Trump. Uh, he's stuck at a ceiling of roughly 42 points uh, in his overall vote uh, while leading among them by double digits. But if non-college white women start to bail uh, on Mr. Trump, that's how he gets into the mid-30s. And that is true disaster territory, uh, and just for him, but, uh, but for his party. And then one final demographic point. Uh, while Mrs. Clinton has certainly had her struggles among the millennial generation, you may remember during the election uh, with Bernie Sanders, uh, the sort of curmudgeon-y 75-year-old man who was the star among the millennial generation, feel the burn. And Hillary Clinton couldn't, uh, couldn't crack that uh, really throughout the campaign. Um, so she's had those struggles. But in the long term, I think uh, Mr. Trump is, is a mega disaster for GOPs with millennials. This year, for the first time, millennials will equal baby boomers uh, as a share of the uh, eligible vote. And they'll exceed them in the actual electorate by 2020. And that's going to end four decades when the baby boomers were the largest group. So we're going through a transition. Uh, and then get this. Uh, sorry, Republicans. <laughs> it's painful for me, too. Um, as many as 75% of millennials say they view Trump unfavorably. They believe he's unqualified, and most importantly, they consider him a racist and a misogynist. There's a poll out today that shows that Hillary Clinton has a 48-point lead among millennials. So this is all really bad long-term stuff for the GOP brand. As for me, for the first time in my life, I am politically homeless, at least at the presidential level. It is the most disorienting and dispiriting presidential race in my lifetime. And it's one that seems to have gone from dark place uh, to dark place. Um, Charles Krauthammer, um, a friend of mine, and, and I think one of the really brilliant writers and political analysts in America today, uh, said that this is the lowest and least honorable campaign that he's ever witnessed. Um, now, for those looking for a silver lining, uh, these are the two least popular candidates in American history, which means that the public understand how bad things are, and they are uh, rejecting it. The public is not happy uh, with the choices that, that, uh, that they have, but this is a democracy, and the parties produce them. Um, and there's just a lot, there's a lot of lack of enthusiasm. Uh, so it's quite likely that the turnout this year is going to be lower than it was in, uh, in 2012, and certainly lower than it was in 2008, when you had a, you had a huge turnout, um, mostly because of Barack Obama and what he brought to that campaign, but not only because of that. Um, as far as the here and the now, on the one side we have Hillary Clinton, a woman of the left uh, who has been drawn further and further to the left uh, during this campaign. Um, she's a person 
with, in my estimation, a record of failure uh, from Hillary Care in the 1990s, if you go back to that, to the Russian reset in the 2010s, uh, to much in between. Uh, I think in her career as First Lady, and then she was Senator of New York, and then Secretary of State, uh, I would say that she did best um, as Senator. Uh, she replaced one of the truly great Senators and one of the truly great men in American public life, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh, who, who passed away. Uh, and uh, she was no Moynihan, um, and she didn't really leave much of an imprint in the Senate, um, but she got along well enough. Uh, she worked well across the aisle, and, um, and she was something of a workhorse rather than a show horse, as, as, they, uh, as they say. Um, so I think she probably did the best there, but even there, I don't think she, she left an enduring uh, or, or terribly um, positive mark. She is also, in my judgment, an ethical wreck, um, dishonest, uh, untrustworthy, and secretive. Uh, we have the cattle future deals in 1978 to the email scandal uh, of today. And she was also someone who was part of um, a brutal political machine in the 1980s and 90s that attempted to destroy the reputation of women who were victims of the sexually uh, predatory practices of her husband. As for Donald Trump, um, I believe he's shown himself to be temperamentally unfit uh, to be president. He is afflicted with what I believe is a clinically disordered personality, sociopathy to be precise. And I don't think you really need to move far beyond that fact to believe that Mr. Trump shouldn't get within 10 miles of the Oval Office. I, uh, I simply cannot vote for a man that I consider to be suffering from sociopathy. Um, but if that's not enough, Mr. Trump has also shown himself to be a man of um, staggering ignorance. I think he's a pathological liar and a sexual predator and a man who's made naked appeals to nativism and racism. He's spoken out in favor of war crimes. Uh, he has praised authoritarian and brutal dictators. Uh, and uh, he's a man that I think has betrayed people in every sphere uh, of his life personally, in the business world, and in the political world. And beyond that, I think he would redefine the Republican Party in a way that it would no longer be the home of conservatism. The prominent constitutional scholar Randy Barnett put it this way, if Trump takes over the Republican Party, it's likely to become a right-wing nationalist party of the kind that you see in Europe. And that isn't the party that I've been a part of uh, since 1980. And it's not one that I would remain a part of if this uh, trajectory continues. Uh, Donald Trump, then, is leaving an indelible stain on institutions and causes that I care deeply about. I do want to say here that uh, this is a pretty tough judgment uh, on, um, on Mr. Trump. And I imagine that there are people in this audience that don't share it. And that's fair enough. Um, and I'm happy to have a, a conversation and, and a dialogue um, afterward uh, on this. Um, I have the views I have, uh, and I think I can de defend them, um, but, but maybe not. I have been in exchange with a lot of friends. Um, they're still friends, uh, actually, who are pro-Trump. Um, and I have tried to understand in my conversations, um, not just to debate them, but to try and listen to them to essentially say to them, what is it that you think that I don't see that I need to see? Uh, what am I missing about him? So um, 
so I, I have heard um, the case for him, and I think I can uh, articulate it. I'm just not persuaded by it. Um, I'll also tell you, uh, you may know this from your, from your own life, but because politics is central to, to my life, my professional life, uh, it's not always easy uh, to keep those friendships, um, and it takes real effort uh, because politics um, inflames a lot of passions, and rightly so. A lot of times there are important things at, at stake. Uh, but my view of this is friendships are more important than politics, and you have to, uh, you have to navigate these, these things. The second thing I'll say is even if I'm right, um, I'm not completely right. I do know that, uh, and none of us are. Uh, the older I've gotten, the, more, the deeper my conviction is that at best we only have a partial apprehension um, of the truth. Everybody comes at things from a different angle of vision. And that doesn't mean that everybody's angle of vision is equally right. I'm not a moral relativist. I don't believe in subjectivism. I think that in the end uh, that there are people who are more closely aligned to, to the truth and the reality of things than, than others. But none of us sees it all. Uh, and all of us are blinded to, to certain things. And that's one of the reasons why, um, why we need other people in our life to, uh, to help us to see those things. Um, and not just to debate other people, but actually, hopefully, to, to, to have people in your life that can refine your views so you see, see the truth better than you would. I, I would say that, you know, it's, it's splintered light. That's, that's the best that we, can, that we can do. And the third thing I'll say, uh, again, have, having made this tough judgment on, on Mr. Trump, is I do realize that I'm a product of my background, um, and I'm, I'm quite certain that some of the views that I have about him are a product of my socioeconomic status, uh, my education, um, and the demographics that I live in. Uh, and if I were in a different situation uh, and had had a different life, then I may well have um, have a different uh, a different view, and um, and that's important I think to take into account um, as well. But in any event, at least for me, uh, this is a season of a really poor choice and the lowest point in presidential politics in generations and generations. Neither major uh, party candidate should be president in my estimation and either one, if elected, will do serious damage to the republic and to the cause of, um, of justice. Um, I wish I could be more upbeat uh, in my analysis, particularly since my disposition tends toward rather than away from hopefulness, uh, but that really is my honest assessment of the situation as I said, I've been a Republican and voted Republican in every election since 1980, uh, but sometimes a party asks too much. Uh, and now I would like to um, narrow the focus a bit to the role that evangelical Christians and the vast majority um, of evangelical Christians support Mr. Trump, and to talk a little bit about the role that they've played in this election, uh, because I believe it has been in the main uh, problematic, and even in some cases discrediting. There have been uh, honorable exceptions, figures like Russell Moore and Max Lucado and magazines like Christianity Today and World, but many self-proclaimed evangelical leaders, uh, Ralph Reed, James Dobson, Gary Bauer, Pat Robertson, Robert Jeffress, uh, Franklin Graham, Jerry Falwell Jr., Eric Metaxas, to name a few, have rallied to Mr. Trump's side and to his cause. Uh, Mr. Metaxas is, is an interesting case. He's written biographies um, 
on Wilberforce and Bonhoeffer, and he has argued that Christians have a moral duty uh, to vote for Donald Trump, and I find that astonishing, uh, and I've had some debates with him about that. Now, I want to make an important distinction here um, between people who will vote for Trump with great reluctance, but they consider him marginally more acceptable than Hillary Clinton because she will advance an agenda that they find abhorrent. And those, like several of the people I just named, who speak glowingly of Trump and will defend him to the bitter end. Uh, to be clear, and I do want to be clear, I think decent people and faithful Christians can vote for Trump, they can vote for Clinton, they can vote for anybody who's on the ticket. And I know several people uh, who will vote uh, for Trump. The way you cast a vote for uh, president is not a reflection uh, on your personal character or your personal integrity. It's, it's a reflection on, on, on how you view politics. Um, but I also believe that supporting and defending Trump as a serious error and a terrible lapse in a prudential and, to some extent, a moral judgment. And in explaining why, I want to start with this. Uh, Mr. Trump uh, is defined by a Nietzschean ethic, not a Christian one. And we see all the hallmarks, the cruelty, the contempt for the powerless, the dehumanization of others. If you disagree uh, with Donald Trump or you oppose him, you're not merely wrong, you're worthless, you're stripped of dignity, and you are the object of derision. And I must tell you that the thing that bothers me the most um, is that, and I think the moment that I found most viscerally difficult during this campaign was when he was giving a speech and he began to mock a reporter with a physical disability. Um, and I, I just didn't process that. I can't imagine why somebody would get up and mock somebody with a physical disability uh, because you didn't like what this reporter said. Um, I just think it's wrong. Uh, and, and I think it speaks to something deeper uh, than a mere lapse in judgment. Nietzschean morality uh, is characterized by indifference to objective truth. So there are those who have studied Nietzsche, there are no facts, there are only interpretations. The repudiation of the Christian concern for the poor and the weak and disdain for the powerless. It celebrates the ubermensch or superman who rejects Christian morality in favor of his own. For Nietzsche, strength was intrinsically good and weakness was intrinsically bad. And so too, I would argue for Donald Trump. His whole life has been characterized by bullying and threatening people who are obstacles to his ambition. He disdains compassion and empathy. He's obsessed with power, and he's indifferent to objective truth, making up his own script as he goes along. The calling of Christians, as I understand it, and not only I, is to be salt and light to the world, uh, to model a philosophy that defends human dignity, and to welcome the stranger in our midst. It is to stand for justice, and to dispense grace, and to be agents of reconciliation in a broken world. And it is to take seriously the words of the prophet Micah. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, and to love kindness and mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? And here's my concern as a Christian, which is that evangelical Christians who are enthusiastically supporting Donald Trump are signaling, even if unintentionally, even if unintentionally, that this calling has no place in politics, and that Christians bring nothing distinctive to it, that their past moral proclamations were all for show, 
and the power is the name of the game. I just don't think um, that Christians should be viewed as another special interest group uh, in politics. I just think that we're supposed to bring something different uh, and better and higher uh, to it, and I don't think that that's happening. At its core, Christianity teaches that everyone, no matter what station or in what season of life, has inherent dignity and worth. Follow justice and justice alone, Deuteronomy says, so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. The attitude of Donald Trump is foreign, I think, to biblical Christianity. And in embracing it, evangelical Christians, I would submit, are doing great damage to their witness. And I think that there is some research um, that would, uh, if not prove the point, then I think uh, at least underscore it. There's research done by Robert Putnam, who's um, a well-known professor at Harvard, and David Campbell. Uh, and they wrote that the growth of the nuns, which are the re religiously unaffiliated, is a direct, direct reaction to the intermingling of religion and politics in the United States. In other words, the way that religion and politics has intermingled in American politics over the last several decades has led a lot of people to disassociate themselves from, uh, from religious institutions and the faith itself. And that's something that, uh, that I think people of, of, of the Christian faith have to, uh, have to take seriously. In conclusion, um, let me set aside uh, this particular election and take st two steps back because it is easy to get caught up in the moment. I get caught up in the moment. Uh, and so I just wanted to offer some thoughts uh, and, and take a look at some of the fundamentals. Uh, for as long as um, I've published, which was beginning in college, I've warned about the dangers of a politicized faith, uh, of putting the cause of Christ above the person of Christ. Um, there's a wonderful book, I don't know if you've ever read it, it's called A Severe Mercy by Sheldon Vanekin. Um, and Vanekin was a friend of C.S. Lewis, who was probably the greatest, I think almost unquestionably the greatest Christian apologist of the 20th century. And, um, and it's a story of his, of his love affair with his wife Daisy and his friendship with Lewis. But in the afterward, um, he talks about he had gotten involved, uh, at that point he had gone to the left and he was involved in the anti-war movement, the Vietnam War. And he wrote very movingly and honestly and deeply about it. And, and, and he said uh, that he, what he found out was that he, he believed that the Lord would be against what he considered to be an unjust war. Um, and so he thought that he was on the right side. He was the one that said that what happened to me and the other people that, that he was affiliated with is that they put, a, put the cause of Christ above the person of Christ. And then they began to hate the people uh, that they disagreed with. And he said, I don't think that that's really what the Lord had in mind. And I read that years ago, and it's always stayed, um, stayed with me about how easy it is to get involved in, in, in politics for, for completely good and genuine reason, to, to advance a cause that is the right cause that you care deeply about but you can just get locked into it and propelled forward by it. And, um, and it's just very, very easy to get absorbed by it. And, uh, and so um, that's something that, uh, that I've noticed. I, I, 
been in, in politics. I understand it as well. I'm human. I know the temptations of these things. So it's, it's been a theme of mine for really since I became a Christian um, in, in high school and college. At the same time, there's also a danger um, of political abdication. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Laws create the moral context for a culture, uh, defining the boundaries of the community and the duties that we owe our fellow citizens. Laws do more than reflect the pre-existing values of a society. They habituate the ideals and expectations of a society. Even as Christians strive to retain an appropriate distance from politics, they cannot avoid their responsibilities as citizens of America and of the city of man. And I don't have a simple scorecard of political issues attached to these duties. So let me leave you with three broad propositions and arguments uh, that may be helpful to you. First, um, politics is the realm of the necessary. At any given moment in a democracy, great issues of justice and morality are at stake. The idea that people of faith can take a sabbatical from politics to collect their thoughts and to lick their wounds is a form of irresponsibility. It is, in fact, an idea that could only be embraced by comfortable Christians. If one lives in a neighborhood plagued by poverty, dominated by gangs, being served by failing schools, there's no sabbatical from the failures of politics. Getting drug dealers off the corner and teaching children the basics of reading and math are at least as important as long-term cultural change and certainly more urgent. If one lives in a foreign country without medicines for AIDS, malaria, tuberculosis, or ruled by a cruel dictator, the current policy priorities of the American people and its government matter greatly. Retreating from the cause of justice, even temporarily, is only conceivable for those who have few needs for justice themselves. Just remember that there are a lot of people that depend on us getting politics right. So a little political maturity uh, is in order. In the last few decades, and especially in the last year, Christians have often done politics poorly. So do most other groups in democracy. The answer is to do politics better. Political engagement is not a luxury. The fighting of raging fires requires not contemplation, but a fire extinguisher. Urgency can involve errors, and these should be admitted and corrected. But as G.K. Chesterton said, even a bad shot is dignified when he accepts a duel. Two, politics is the realm of hope and possibility. In the late 1990s, Paul Weyrich, a prominent leader of the religious right, circulated a public letter declaring that America was, quote, caught up in a cultural collapse of historic proportions, a collapse so great that it simply overwhelms politics, unquote. America was descending into, quote, something approaching barbarism, unquote. People of faith, Weyrich concluded, should adopt a strategy of separation. We need some sort of quarantine, he said. But something unexpected happened on the way to American cultural collapse. A number of the reformers in cities and state governments demonstrated that at least some of our cultural decay was the result not of bad values, but of failed policy. And better policies dramatically reduced violent crime rates, cut teenage drug use, reduced welfare dependency, encouraged dignified work, and improved performance in many low-income schools. Cultural fatalism was simply not justified. 
Problems that may seem intractable at one moment, violence and disorder, harmful and reckless conduct, can yield and yield quickly to the right policies and to a determined citizenry. Far from being discredited by recent history, politics has shown a remarkable ability to improve lives. So we shouldn't dismiss or devalue the political enterprise. And third, politics can be the realm of nobility. At its best, politics is about the right ordering of our lives together. It cannot be unimportant because justice is never unimportant. Political rhetoric and ideals can raise the moral sights of a nation and point men and women to responsibilities beyond the narrow bounds of self and family. Creative policy can serve the common good in the local school or on the other side of the world. But young men and women must remember too that while politics is our duty, it is not our hope. It is a noble calling, but it is not our ultimate destination. Christians uh, are useful in public life precisely because they recognize a wide world of eternal values and meaning beyond the political realm. We work for the good and health of this earthly city, but we hope for a city where there is no more death, you know, no more tears, no more suffering, and no more sorrow. For we know, St. Paul wrote in his letter to the Corinthians, that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in heaven. The city of man is our residence for now, and we care for its order and justice, but the city of God is our home. Thank you very much. Thank you, Pete. I'm going to ask the first question here and uh, would encourage you um, to follow up with any questions that you have. And I think Casey's got a microphone there, so he's going to circulate. Casey, I'm going to let you be in charge of who you're calling on to ask questions. Thank you, Pete. Uh, appreciate your remarks. Yoni Applebaum, uh, writing in The Atlantic, recently has suggested, quote, American civil religion died in the first debate, end quote, between Trump and Clinton. In that debate, Applebaum writes, quote, there was little emphasis on either America's distinctive mission or on the individual or collective responsibility to achieve it, end quote. Typically, presidential candidates call us to shared principles and values. Um, Applebaum continues, quote, Washington told his fellow citizens that they, quoting Washington, have the same religion, manners, habits, and political principles, end quote. Lincoln observed that they, again, quoting Lincoln, read the same Bible and pray to the same God, even as each invokes his aid against the other, end quote. And President Obama reminded them that they, in quoting Obama, worship an awesome God in states both red and blue, end quote. Is Applebaum correct? Is American civil religion dead? Uh, it's, uh, it's injured. I think it's injured. Um, and I th as I said, I think this is a low moment. I'd say a couple of things. I, I would um, associate myself with a lot of what, what was said there. Um, I think, though, I, I'd be careful. There is a tendency to romanticize a little bit about, about the past in American politics. Um, and we remember these kind of um, 
sort of high moments, uh, rhetorical moments, even you know, with Lincoln. And Lincoln, to me, is the great figure in American history, and really maybe the greatest American who ever lived. Um, but there was a civil war <laughs> that he presided over, uh, and it was an astonishingly brutal war. A country of 30 million, 750,000 people died. Um, and, um, and you go back and you, and you look at the periods with, with, with Roosevelt. Well, he, he, gee, I mean, go to the election of 1800 between Adams and Jefferson, uh, which was one of the most brutal elections in American history. And indeed, if you read the scholars would say at that time and what they subsequently said, um, that almost tore the, the young republic um, apart. And, um, and you, one also hears, uh, I mean, I hear this all the time, that you know, when, when Reagan was president, he and Tip O'Neill would have these battles, and then they would go out and get beer together. Um, a, they didn't go out and get beer together that, that much. But, but B, O'Neill said some vicious things about, uh, about Reagan. So that, that is important. Now, having, having said that, um, the, what's been so striking uh, is the number of, I think, civic and cultural and political guardrails that have been uh, knocked over and aside uh, and, and blown apart during, um, during this election. And that's really, uh, I, I believe, on my party and the person that my party nominated. I, I think Donald Trump is just unprecedented in that regard. And I do worry about, um, about not just where we are, but what kind of precedent has been set. Um, and I don't know. I don't know. It could be that, that it, there's such a, a distaste left in people's mouth that nobody tries this ever again. And, uh, and so in some ways it, it acts as, a, as, a, you know, as, as an inoculation against, uh, against the future, things like this. Or it may be that people say, you know, we've gone down this road and, and there will be a lot of other people uh, to go down uh, it as well. But it's been um, unbelievably um, nasty um, and personal and dark, and I imagine in the next two weeks it's going to get more that way. The other thing I would say is that there's been almost no um, discussion of policy um, at all during this election. Uh, I, I don't know that if I, if there's a you know Hillary Clinton supporter, if you said what are the three things that she would do if she were president, I don't think they could say. I don't think I could say, and I follow these things pretty closely, and I, I don't think I could say if that about Trump as well, um, and. Um, and so I think that's been discouraging. Um, and I, I must say one other thing, which is I think the media has a lot of complicity in this too, um, because uh, there have been people who have tried to, to interject policy in here, but the media itself has focused and hyper-focused on the theatrical side of politics. And, um, and everybody knows that. And so, uh, you know, if there's a dramatic moment or a, a particularly ugly moment, that's what gets replayed over and over and over again. And you forget about any of the discussions that, that took place. You know, Neil Postman wrote a book um, back in the 1980s, I guess, called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And, and his concern was that the wall separating sort of politics and entertainment was coming down. Um, and, uh, and he was very worried about that, but I don't think that, that even he could have anticipated where, where we are. So this is gonna have to be rebuilt. Um, this stuff matters, and, um, and a democracy um, is not a guarantee, and, 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 and self-government's not guaranteed. It requires certain things uh, of government and of, of the people, and um, if you lose them, you lose a lot. 
Many of our students uh, were supporters of Bernie Sanders mm -hmm. during the primary process. In fact, um, Bernie Sanders won several straw polls mm -hmm. among students here at Whitworth. Um, some students expressed their support for Sanders because of their faith commitments. Mm -hmm. Others supported Sanders because of their philosophical leanings. How do you explain the support for Sanders among millennials, and particularly among Christian millennials? Yeah. I think um, it is peculiar, as I said, a 75-year-old curmudgeon who's who kind of lit the millennial world on, on fire. Uh, so it, it, it was an odd thing. He wasn't, it wasn't the kind of person where if you would have drawn up in a, you know, uh, a, a political back room who would be the ideal millennial candidate, I don't think you would have come up with, with Bernie Sanders. I imagine that there are probably several factors going on. I, I think one is he probably spoke to issues that, that concerned them, which would have been income inequality. And of course, Sanders was a one-trick pony. For him, it was Wall Street and the amount of money in politics and uh, the system is sort of rigged for the rich and everybody else is, is, um, is being taken advantage of. Um, and uh, it is true, if you look at polls, for example, the number of millennials uh, that uh, believe in socialism, <clears throat> which has never really had any traction in this country, um, an astonishingly high percentage of, of uh, millennials associate themselves with socialism, and Bernie Sanders is a socialist. Now, he's a democratic socialist. He's not, you know, he's not the hardest uh, of, of, of the socialists that you get, but he's pretty far out there. So I assume that that, that was part of it. Um, and I do think that income inequality, uh, which has is, which is, uh, dramatically gone up over the last several decades, it's a complicated phenomenon uh, for why it's, it's gone up and what you have to, have to do about it. In terms of why Christian um, millennials would be associated with them, I, I'm guessing that there was a sense of justice, um, a, a sense of taking on the powerful on behalf of the, of the less powerful, uh, which is certainly a theme within, within Christianity um, I'm a conservative, uh, so I, I think that the Sanders prescriptions um, are, are heading in the wrong way, and I, I don't think that they would advance human flourishing. I think it would, it would do the opposite. Um, but he was able to, uh, to do it, and, and he was somebody who had, uh, unlike Secretary Clinton, he, you could tell why he was running. Uh, he, he, was, he had these passions, and, and I don't think she ever conveyed that. If, if she has deep passions in politics, she's done a fantastic job of um, hiding them. Um, so I, I would suspect that, that that's the reason. Would you all join me in thanking Pete Wainer for his time tonight? Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay, thank you. We're adjourned. Thank you.